I think one of the things I always loved about consulting is that there was something new and different every day. So, you know, I, I did have to learn a new industry almost every time I switched clients. And if it wasn't the, if it was the same industry, it's a whole new group of people and dealing with different problems. So all of the reps I had on coming into a business and having to learn it ramp up pretty quickly, adapt to that environment definitely is a skill that was developed that I value and that I think is maybe successful in, in everything else. Now, healthcare is a little bit more daunting than, you know, going from a manufacturing company to a distribution company or, you know, whatever other traditional industry you think about, because healthcare, like it or not, is very different. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast Show. My name is Jake Harris. I'm the host. At least that's what they said. I don't know. They uh, they gave it to me. They said I, I could keep talking on this. And it's actually me. I just pressed the record button on the, on the computer screen here. So I have an awesome episode today with Joe Wexler. Joe Wexler is coming in hot from South Carolina, from Charleston, South Carolina. And, and we talk about buying businesses. We talk about him transitioning out of the management consulting industry and actually listen to some of the things about his international business experiences and a fascinating thing uh, that he has has lived in a lot of other places around the world all around the world and how he leveraged that into some of his business buying uh resume. I found this incredibly fascinating. It was actually at the end of the episode I was like man I need to do part two and maybe even dive into more details because I have so many questions. So jump into this episode with my friend Joe Wexler and learn more about business buying practices on Passive Wealth Principles. All right, my man, Joe, welcome to the Passive Wealth Principles podcast show. Joe Wexler, you're coming to us hot and coming in from Charleston, South Carolina. You are actually just on a trip. Were you in Scotland or Ireland or something like that? Yeah, I did 10 days, Jake, in um, Ireland, Amsterdam, England. So it was like five cities, 10 days watching rugby with a bunch of guys, I'm a little bit uh, jet lagged, as you can imagine, 
still recovering. It was a great trip though. It was fun. Did I see that you went to like the Guinness, you know, place, uh, the, the, dis- what, what is the brewery distillery brewery? Yeah. yeah brewery. Yeah. Guinness, Guinness factory in Dublin. It's an awesome, actually really awesome place. Um, they do a really good job with the, the museum tour and then tastings. And if you like Guinness, I mean, it's probably the best pint you can get. So right from the source, <laughs> it's fun. Been there a few times. And that's actually, you know, uh, before we get into some of your background, or this is maybe just taking like a teaser into your background. So you have experience working over in UK and in that area. So what what is it? What you you said you've been there multiple times. What was your job that you did that and and what landed you on the other side of the pond? Yeah, good question. I mean, since a young age, I've been encouraged to explore and travel and adventure. My parents both did that. They were kind of like gypsies. They taught and my dad taught in Iran. My mom hitchhiked through Ireland. So when I was old enough to like tie my own shoes, if I had any interest in going, traveling and trying something new, they made it happen. We didn't have any money, but they were like always create opportunities for that. So from a very young age, I've been interested in that. I played in an international hockey league in Norway when I was like 13. I definitely did like the six month backpacking thing in college. And then I spent probably 10 years traveling full time for work in management consulting. And most of my clients were global international clients. So I was I was all over the place. I think I went to like 35 or 40 countries in that time frame. My wife and I lived in Dublin and we lived in Italy. I've done some work in the Arctic Circle in Sweden. So it's just always been part of part of what I do. So this was just a trip for fun, but it's been work and play and live. It's just been a part of it. So. So where, where did you meet your wife? We met in college. We actually were, this is a funny, embarrassing story. I'm not embarrassing. I'm totally proud of it. We were in an acapella group together. Um, that's how we met. (laughs) Um, so what was the name of the group? We were the outsiders. (laughs) So what's that show? Pitch perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, we have Akka babies and the whole thing. Our kids hate it when we sing, but um, it's good stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love that. My wife is a singer. She actually, her dad is a music teacher and uh, plays piano, teaches people, and it, it still does that. So she grew up singing and she has a beautiful voice. And it was like, I actually wish she, she sung more, but, but it was like, I do not have that. I was not in any acapella groups. I was in a church choir when I was uh, young. And I, I don't remember why I didn't continue that. I think they may have asked me to stop. Um, can you maybe go play the triangle or something over there? Yeah. I mean, I've never been trained. I never took classes. I can barely read music. But I saw this group perform my freshman year in college. I was like, man, that looks fun. I should try that. And then I made it. And then I was the black sheep because everybody was, knew how to write music and play the piano like, you know, like anybody's business. So I just never, I never knew any of that stuff. I was just there to have fun and kind of step outside of the comfort zone a little bit. Um, cause I was an athlete and fraternity and all that stuff, which just the acapella thing didn't always mesh with that, but it was, it's a funny, it's a great way to have met my wife. It's a, people are always surprised by that, but <laughs> I love hearing that. That's, that's interesting. So let's actually take it, uh, you know, uh, back. I mean, that's uh, some interesting things, your dad teaching and, and Iran, you know, so like, wh- where'd you grow up? Where'd young Joe? And it sounds like, you know, in 13, you're in hockey in Norway, you're in these other things. So it was like, maybe give for some people like what, where did, you know, all of this start for you? 
Yeah, so I grew up in and around New York area, I would say. Uh, we moved around a ton. Like I said, we it wasn't always stable. We had my parents were teachers at boarding schools. My dad was born in Manhattan. My mom was born in Long Island. So we were always around that area. But we lived in Boston. We lived in Connecticut. We lived in New York. And my parents split when I was five. So single parent and then a couple of remarriages and just sort of always, always hopping around. I think when I lived in my fraternity house in college, that was the, the longest place I had lived in my life for, the, for those three and a half years. So nothing bad about it. It just kind of is what it, it's how it went. So, yeah, I grew up in the Northeast, went to school in the Midwest, which to my family was like, where is that? What time zone? Where? I don't understand. <laughs> Third world country. Uh, but turned out to be really great. I still have some of my closest friends are from there. Obviously met my wife there. And um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the origin. And so you, did you roll in right from college into kind of consulting or business stuff? You know, was that a path that you were planning on going? Was it, Hey, I'm going to go get a, and maybe what, what did you study in college? And then where, where did you kind of make that yep. 10 years of travel? I started studying engineering. Our math department wasn't very good or I wasn't very good at math. I'm not sure at that level of math, <laughs> I was always pretty good at math, but I switched to economics management. So basically like a business degree and I got a, a double major in Spanish and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I took, I took a job right out of college for one year and it was a job kind of traveling around the country. Um, and then I had to figure it out again from there. At that point I started applying for my MBA and as I was filling out applications, I realized I wasn't really qualified yet to get into one of the good schools because um, I wanted to get into like top 10, top 20 school kind of thing. I don't know why, but that was where my head was at. So I realized I needed a little bit more experience and I couldn't answer all the application questions. So there's essays like, what are you going to do with this? Why are you pursuing this? And I didn't really have the right answer to make it worthwhile for me at that time. So then I started hunting again. I got into construction management and I ended up working for four or five years in the real estate development, commercial construction industry. There was a company that I had worked for as a laborer throughout high school and college, just summers and holidays. And I ran into the, uh, the owner one day. I was coming out of New York City. I was wearing a tux. I was interviewing, not a tux, a suit. I was interviewing for a job in Manhattan that I didn't want, didn't really understand. Um, and he said, what are you doing? Come work for me. See if you like it. And I ended up liking it, got pretty good at it, uh, started a company in Cincinnati with somebody that was wanting to build a real estate development company, but didn't know the construction side. So uh, I was you know, in my mid twenties and started a real estate development company. We did like $18 million in the first year. So that was pretty fun, but I still had the idea in the back of my head that I wanted to get my MBA because I wanted to get into strategy management consulting. Didn't know what it was. It just sounded sexy. Um, but, you know, after four or five years of being in the workforce and exploring and learning and developing some skills, I felt more confident that I could apply an MBA to more productively than I would have when I, if I tried to do it right out of college. So went and got my MBA full time. I ended up going to Ohio State, which at the time was like a top 20 program. Uh, I had gotten into some of the top like five or 10 business schools, but I got a full ride at Ohio State. So that was really the decision maker there. And it was great. I spent half the time in Europe 
Um, I did part of the time as an exchange student in Italy, which is when my wife and I lived there. And I was successful in making that switch over to management consulting. So great experience. Doing it full time was great. It was like, a, you know, everybody was in their mid to late 20s. We'd all had worked, made a little bit of money. And now we had this like built in break where we could just kind of <laughs> chill. It also happened to be like 2008, 2009. So the economy was it was a great time not to be in the economy, if you will, and to be learning about it. Yeah. That sounds um, like fortunate timing as far as the sequencing through some of those, you know, so then you took that, you know, now your MBA, freshly minted MBA rolled into, you know, management consulting. Did you have like a specialty of an industry that you, you know, because of your construction background or development, did it go that way? Or like, you know, was there a certain niche? Because I know some of those, it's like, you're just, you can do all kinds of different crazy things depending on what group that you're with and different kind of skill sets. So, you know, what was that next 10 years of traveling and consulting working work for you? Yeah, it, it started out very general. So there was not really a specific functional area. If there was, it was maybe in the financial management of businesses. So everything the CFO does, think about that. But it was also just strategy. And I was across industries. I worked in manufacturing, distribution, financial services, some consumer, consumer product goods. It was all over the board. I did get pretty good at, and I think my specialty became like international projects. So if a large multinational company was going to have an initiative that was going to impact all of their offices around the world, that's really where I tried to focus. Um, which is what led to a lot of that travel. Now I created that opportunity because others were just like always going to like the Midwest factory and just, <laughs> that's all I did. But then having, once I got good at that, then people were seeking me out for those projects, which was pretty cool. I joined, you know, one of, one of the big companies, I joined Booz right out of grad school, which was a great breeding ground, a lot of smart people. I jumped a couple times. I went to a smaller firm and then I ended up at PwC, which is one of the biggest companies in the country in the world, really had my eyes on the partner path. I mean, that's sort of what you get into that. You're either going to get into consulting for two years to get it on your resume and then jump ship to an operating company, or you're going to go up the partner path, which is what I wanted to do. But then I started having children. My son was born. And my first trip after he was born, he was two or three weeks old. I had to go to Tokyo. So I'm on the other side of the world. I was by myself. My wife's at home with a new human that we don't know how to take care of. And that's when I started realizing maybe this isn't the lifestyle I want, which is what led us to move it to Charleston. So we moved to Charleston, uh, South Carolina, because I have some family here. And my wife knew that I was still kind of on this traveling path and fully supported it, but wanted a little bit more of a network around her. So we moved to Charleston. I was still traveling, but the goal was to find something that I wasn't traveling full time. And I found a small boutique strategy consulting firm based in Charleston that I ended up joining as a partner and they did all healthcare consulting. So I had never been in healthcare at all, but the opportunity was good. I took a big risk. The guy that hired me took a big risk. I was the most experienced hire he'd ever had, uh, but we were able to grow that. I learned healthcare to some degree and then we ended up selling that business in 2019 to a larger healthcare M&A advisory company. You know, when we sold that business, I think it was 
it was the reasons why we did that are interesting. We had kind of hit a ceiling. It felt like, um, and I can, there's a, there's a big follow-up story on, on the back end of that, but any questions on what I just walked through? No, I, I love that. And actually, and I was going to ask specifically around that, you know, going from something of international, you know, financial and strategy and there's other things to now learning a new industry, which is sometimes like maybe the traditional advice is to like stick in one lane and, yeah. you know, know that very well. And, you know, it was like, but, and I've seen, and obviously I, I know that, that you had this exit and you had this success and was learning something new or getting into a new, you know, kind of genre of business. So like, what was that process around learning and becoming, you know, now a healthcare consultant or, or business uh, strategist? Um, what was that process like? And then what were some of those like pain points and struggles? And then what were some of those successes that you maybe attribute to your levels of success? I think one of the things I always loved about consulting is that there was something new and different every day. So, you know, I, I did have to learn a new industry almost every time I switched clients. And if it wasn't the, if it was the same industry, it's a whole new group of people and dealing with different problems. So this, the, all of the reps I had on coming into a business and having to learn it ramp up pretty quickly, adapt to that environment definitely um, is a skill that was developed that I value. And that I think is maybe successful in, in everything else. Now, healthcare is a little bit more daunting than, you know, going from a manufacturing company to a distribution company or, you know, whatever other traditional industry you think about, because healthcare, like it or not, is very different, especially in the United States. And I remember when I was considering making that move, the, the gentleman that owned the consulting company said, you have to meet my biggest client before I, you know, he has to kind of sign off on this because it was a very small firm. So I had coffee one Saturday morning with the CEO of the largest health system in South Carolina. And I was terrified because I didn't, I mean, I couldn't spell healthcare and he was great. He was very gracious. And he's, he's basically said, look, healthcare is way behind. We don't have a lot of people that understand business. And when we make decisions, it's not always driven based on that. So that's what we need. But like it or not, we're going to ask you to stand in front of a room of 50 physician leaders and run them through a complete transformation. And I think you can do it but they just have a different perspective. So it was, it was intimidating. And I spent, I think it was maybe five years with that four or five years with that firm understanding healthcare and developing a pretty good network there. So I'm still in healthcare in some degrees. We can talk about that in a little bit, but it, it's intimidating, but I do think being adaptable and just being curious and knowing what you don't know and being uh, humble about those things all go a long way. So you mentioned before in that healthcare industry, you kind of hit a ceiling, you know, as far as, and that's where you decided to exit. And, I, and the reason I asked that is I was actually just, you know, sharing out with some people is I get asked that question sometime is like, when's the best time to exit a deal, a business, a real estate deal? Like, is there some matrix or like, when's the, how am I going to maximize my return? And so I would ask to you is like, what, what was that? Or what was that decision process? And what were kind of those struggles that led to that ultimate exit for you? Yeah. I mean, no, nobody has a crystal ball and everybody's always optimistic. And I count myself in that camp <laughs> um, so, for better or worse. 
I think, you know, my partner and I realized Charleston's a pretty small market. So the things that we had a hard time with, and I, I later kind of discovered that it was probably us, not necessarily the Charleston component, but we were having a hard time recruiting and retaining good talent. And we were having a hard time with attracting new clients as a consulting firm. So one of our solutions was, okay, well, let's go find another bigger consulting firm that has, in theory, has a a recruiting engine that we can take, take advantage of and a, a book of clientele and a marketing process that we can take advantage of. We have an expertise that they might not have. So it's not like we're just kind of coming and trying to suck off their teeth, but let's find a good combination of that. So we were, we had just kind of stalled out, right? We, we were maximizing our revenue based on the team that we had that we knew we could maintain, but we weren't really knocking it out of the park in terms of finding new, interesting work, new clients, and attracting great talent. So that was the reason we did it. We found a pretty good home on paper. So the, the company we joined um, did something that was tangential to us, but had always wanted to add our type of service, uh, but had never been able to build it organically. They saw some of their competitors do that, where you know they might've started here, the two firms, and their competitor might've added our service and gone like this. And they didn't, and they just stayed here. And they were really good at this, but competitors are blowing them out of the water. And there was, so on paper, it made sense. I think culturally after the deal was done is where things got a little bit, a little bit wire, uh, hairy. So personalities are involved, uh, different cultures, you know, merging two businesses is a big deal. Um, so I don't know if we didn't spend enough time on that before we decided to go with that merger or not, but I was on the board of that new company. It wasn't an exit for me when we sold that business. The, the idea was, we're folding our company into this bigger firm and that's going to be our platform to, to go and grow. And on paper it was working, but I think for me, you ask about like, when did I make a decision to get out? It's when during that first year, I saw the writing on the wall that the cultural obstacles we were facing were not going to be overcome. And my options were to go back to the way things were at the company before we sold it, which I didn't want to do because there was a reason we made that decision or to come up with some weird solution where I stayed as part of the new company and my partner didn't. And long story short, I just, I realized that the best thing for me to do was just like cut all ties and get out. And fortunately the timing was good. I somehow, pulled it off where I did get an exit out of that situation. So my partners bought me out of the equity and this is where I did a complete, you know, 180 on what I was doing. So at the same time of realizing that culturally it wasn't going to work, I also realized that I didn't really want to do consulting anymore. <laughs> um, so uh, consulting is great because it's interesting and you can, you can make decent money and meet good people, but um, it was 100% trading time for money. If you think about how we build, it was our it was hourly rate, right? The whole, that was the whole model. What's the most you can charge and what's the most hours you could work to charge that rate. So always had to be on, you always had to be proving your value, making sure people were trusting you and you were credible and you weren't being sleazy. Uh, so it just, it, it became a grind and it's not really what I wanted to do. It's when it's at that point when I was, I mean, late in life, starting to realize the value of having assets or passive income or 
not trading time for money. Like all of that stuff happened late in life for me. And it was at that time when I was like, I got to change what I'm doing here. I love that. And obviously the, the passive wealth principles, you know, we're talking about, you know, these yeah, exact right. things. And, and I think the, the stop trading your time for money becomes a very, very big driver. And let's say that, you know, uh, you know, you and I, you know, maybe came to different paths of realization that that was like, wait a minute, it's not about how much money you're making in a job, but like how much time freedom do you have? How much also like maybe the vehicle that can take you to, to next levels. And if it is maybe your dollar per hour goes up, you know, maybe it's not a hundred, maybe it's 200 or 500 or a thousand dollars, but it's also limited on how much time you're committing to a particular thing. So I know, and as far as, so you get, you have this exit, you exit out of the kind of the healthcare industry, but now you're doing something new and, uh, you know, and I think has a lot of upside potential, uh, specifically around time freedom, as well as growing maybe your net worth exponentially beyond just uh, a consulting gig. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. Tell the people, tell the listeners what you're doing now and what the last few years have been for you in, you know, now you've transitioned out of consulting what does that next kind of process look for your life and what you're doing today? Yeah, that's been a dynamic couple of years. So I, we sold the business in early 2019. I stayed on board. And then at the end of 2019, I started talking to my partner. And in February 2020, I told him I was leaving. So this is the very beginning of COVID. <laughs> but what I was getting into was I wanted to acquire businesses. So take all of the things that are good about having been in consulting like I've seen a lot of different businesses. I have worked with companies on their organizational structure, design, their strategies, their growth strategies, their operational efficiencies, some of their merger and acquisition activity. So the assets that I was then looking to acquire were operating companies. So I had this idea of, I thought it was unique at the time. Obviously, I've learned since then I'm, I'm not <laughs> totally novel, but I think the approach is interesting. So the goal was to acquire a portfolio of operating companies that I would kind of sit over top and strategize and provide resources to, but that they would be run day to day by a um, team of managers individually. 
So that's what I set out to do is learn how to do that. When I left, I didn't know how to do that. I just had this idea. So the first thing I did was learned. I mean, I just 2020 ended up being awesome time for that because everyone was sort of sitting on the sidelines seeing what was going to happen. So I consumed as many books and podcasts. I took a class. I joined some mastermind groups um, and just got really versed in the process. And then for me, I think I'm pretty action oriented. Um, I'm not like a ready, aim, fire person. I'm probably like a fire <laughs> person and go and learn from the mistakes, uh, keep the things that work, the things that don't work. So I just started looking for businesses to buy. Um, and, you know, I had a, I had the benefit of that exit, which gave me in a couple of years of good earnings that I hadn't done anything with. So I had some cash, I had some runway, and I just got out there and started looking. Now I did start an M&A advisory company, let's call it, um, firm, all focused on all small business mergers and acquisitions. So the vision was that my holding company, this would be my holding company, that when I went to market to acquire a business, I would do it with, within that and that would be my portfolio. I would also, for businesses that I didn't want to buy, that didn't fit my specific thesis, I could still help them in that transition and get some, this is still a little bit consulting, right? So I get it. I know I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth now, but um, it helps with cash flow. It helps with deal flow. And for the things that, that I think would be attractive to actually acquire, they would kind of come to me before they went out to the market. So, so that's the strategy. So that's what I've gone on and built. And then in the last, let's see, year to 15 months, I've acquired four or five businesses and the M&A advisory firm is still going strong. I hired a COO to really run the day-to-day -day of that business, which has been great. Well, so I can focus on just kind of sitting over top of the other ones. A lot of lessons learned, a lot of like failed starts. Uh, it took me probably 18 months to close on the first business from when I started. Got left at the altar once or twice. So, but man, it's been great. I mean, free time freedom. You know, I just took 10 days in Europe and I still have bags under my eyes. You can see that <laughs> but, from that trip. But, uh, you know, I pick my kids up at school, do all, do all those things too. So work out of the house most of the time. And that's, that's what I was really excited about this episode is that you and I have had some, some calls and some conversations about, you know, exactly that acquiring operating companies or, or tucking them in through some M&A activity to existing things that, that we're already doing. So it's like, we can become a client to ourselves, you know, and, and bolster the, the revenues. So uh, I'd love to, love to dive into, you know, some of those failures and, and lessons learned. Um, just because I believe that a lot of people are, is, are not default action oriented. They're the default um, analysis paralysis. And so then they have a hard time actually, you know, creating the momentum and the action, you being someone that's an action, you know, taker first and foremost. So like the 18 months to close the first deal, like walk us through like what that experience was, you know, are your deals now still taking 18 months? Is it shorter? Like what were some of the lessons learned about acquiring this first business that you invested into? Yeah. So I guess, let's see, the first 18 months before I closed was the six months of that was just information gathering, education, learning experience, and talking about it. I mean, the coolest thing is, Jake, obvious, like, honestly, as soon as I started 
being intentional about telling people this is what I was going to, then like resources would come to me, which was incredible. Whether those resources were support from somebody that had done it before or, hey, why don't you take a look at this business or come sit alongside me as I talk about this. So I got I got kind of like a under the hood look at a couple of these things happening before I was actually doing it myself, which was invaluable, as you could imagine. I was under contract with one business that was a it was it was a two companies, same owner, went through the whole process, financing, contracting, purchase agreement, LOI, due diligence, all the things. And a week before closing, she introduced me to the whole team, the whole new company, said, this is your new owner. I'm still going to be around, but Joe's buying the company and there was tears and I had to like, you know, introduce myself as the new company, new owner. And then the next day she called and said, I can't do it. Can't sell it to you. So they, they were, I mean, this was a good thing. Actually, she ended up, we discovered some tax liability during due diligence that she hadn't really disclosed to her advisors. And they told her because we had done, done a good job of finding that and then carving it out. They said, why? Why is he being so strict about the language here? And she said, well, I've got these letters from the IRS going back 12 years. And they're like, what? <laughs> you can't sell your business now. So the, a good lesson there was, A, the due diligence is important. And sometimes not doing a deal is more is better than actually just doing a bad one. Um, but also because I was so excited about that company and that opportunity and I was like had put so much energy into it, I had let some of the other stuff fall off. So I hadn't kept my deal search going and I hadn't kept some of those things happening. So once it stopped, I had to like restart everything. So that was a, a good lesson there. That was probably in March of 21. And then I finally closed on the first acquisition in October of 21. So after having restarted all the, all those engines, yeah, my process is quicker now because I've gone through it several times but it still takes a long time when you're looking at buying a business. So, but that's why it took 18 months. It's because I was like, I was learning. I was uh, seeing things from other people's perspective. I had a couple of failed starts like that one, um, all valuable experiences. So, so I, I talk a lot about due diligence because I, I agree that that is one of the most critical steps that people need to make sure to dig into because obviously you know, again, this is me on my soapbox, but I was like, you don't want to close on the deal, hoping that everything's going to work out and then discover some of those things. And so like the due diligence time period where you're in contract or you're under LOI or PSA or whatever that is for buying a business or industry is like, that's the time to do all of your due diligence. So like, how did you as a new business buyer, and maybe this is from some of your management consulting things, like what does your due diligence process look like? Who did you bring on or did you bring on consultants and outside consultants to then help you through that due diligence process of buying a business? Yeah, 100%. So I didn't do any of this alone. Um, every, every acquisition I've done, I've actually done with partners and not the same partners, um, but specifically like intentional partners for that opportunity. And so the operational due diligence, I feel comfortable with based on my background. So I can, I can do all that, all the legal due diligence. I have a great attorney um, that I've found and established a good relationship with to do all that side of things. And then for the financial due diligence, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm good at reading financial statements and understanding what's going on, but not really digging in on like the debits and credits and reconciling bank accounts and understanding 
maybe some of the nuances of that. So I bring in, I've got a couple of people that I will, that will help me out on the financial due diligence. In one case, he's a, he's one of the investors on one of the, one of the partners in one of the businesses. So I've never had to pay for that part of it, but I would hundred percent recommend people that don't have that expertise, find out whatever the expertise is that you don't have and go find that in your due diligence process. Cause I was never proud enough to think that I could really understand all of it. And I'm not, like I'm probably a little bit too high level to be the right one to do it, right? Like I, I've never thought of myself as a visionary. I've taken some tests recently that that's, that's clearly the bucket I sit in. But if you ask me to go do reconcile bank accounts and financial statements and all that, I'm not going to do a good job. <laughs> so I'm more of a, hey, this I like this guy. I like his business. I'm going to shake his hand. Let's go do something cool together. I need somebody to check me on the other side for sure. So... Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great advice as far as assembling your team. Business is a team sport. You know, this is not, you know, a, a marathon where you're running yourself. And even somebody running a marathon has training partners, has coaches, has other people that are working with them to get, you know, better and better, even though it's an individual uh, that's running that particular race. But what Joe, you just mentioned, you know, like, hey, you have the experience in the operational. And so you can kind of do your DD on that. Um, or due diligence, you know, legal, other things like that, like the same thing. Like I'm, I'm just not good at reading legal documents. Uh, I, I can pretty much understand what I'm reading, but it's like in the, the legalese, like words really, really matter. And I was like, sometimes the technical definition of one of those words and I'm going through, I'm like Googling stuff. And I was like, I've negotiated like a hotel management agreement and other things like that. And I just had them like delete a bunch of things out. Cause it was like, dumb guy doesn't know hotel industry that was just like, uh, this doesn't sound right to me. And they're like, how'd you get them to delete that? And I was like, I don't know. I just asked. And it was like, but it's a matter of getting the right people that can very quickly identify when there's some flaw. And, and, and to go back to sports, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, like the, let's use the Olympics as an example. When someone is commentating on like a gymnast or ice skating routine. And the commentator is like, Oh my gosh, they missed that there. They did this. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Like, that great. Yeah. <laughs> you look fine. I was like, Oh no, they were supposed to do a triple sow cow backflip, you know, toe hook, you know, and they did that the other way. And I'm like, look pretty awesome to me. Like uh, I probably would die doing that. And so it's like, they can see it so quickly that the cost of bringing them on hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars or whatever it is that they're charging is hails in comparison to what if you're wrong. Yeah. I'm looking at a business right now that I don't, I really like the business. I like the owners, I like the history. I like, I like what we would get when we, if we bought it but it's an industry that I don't have a lot of confidence in understanding where it's headed. So we were talking today, actually, like we need to figure out if this is an industry that's on the incline, is it stable? Is it looking like it might decline over time? Cause I could see any one of those scenarios in this specific industry. And that's not something me or my partner would be able to really understand unless we talk to some experts about it. So in this case, we might actually go find an expert that we, Pay as a consultant to talk us through some of that. And I think it's totally worth it every time. So, yeah. I think that's, you know, sage, sage advice for someone. So now you've acquired, you know, some companies. 
What have been some of the biggest lessons learned of now getting into as the owner, you know, and now you're not the consultant, you're not the one that's giving them a fancy report that says you should do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, these and knowing them that these are smaller ish businesses, these are not giant corporations that you're acquiring. So what have been some of those biggest like, oh, wow, lesson learned, aha kind of moments in the the first you know year, a uh, little more than a year on your first acquisition and, and maybe not as long on some of the others? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, some things I knew going in that I validated are people are super important. So when you're understanding what every business I'm acquiring, one of my things is I want to make sure there's a management team or a management structure in place. I'm not trying to buy another job. I look at this as an asset. It's not 100% passive, and I don't have that illusion. These are hand; they can be hands-on at least for a period of time. So nothing's nothing's going to be 100% passive all the time on this. Now, my goal is to buy a company that has management team in place that I can spend the first three three to six max months like in and engaged and learning the business and understanding the the people and the culture and the dynamics, so that I can then help that team make decisions, strategic decisions over time. And if I have to hire the general manager or the person that's gonna run the day-to-day to replace the seller, I have the context to be able to hire the right person. So I've been very successful with that. You know, I think maybe one lesson is things take a little bit longer than I would have liked in some cases. So in all of the pro formas, I, you know, I definitely include some additional expenses in the first year, um, some investment dollars, Obviously, like consider interest rates. These are all, you know, leveraged acquisitions, but that probably they've taken a little bit longer to materialize. Everything's actually really good in the businesses, but just takes a little bit longer. So that's probably the biggest thing. Just be patient. So know going in, if your expectation is to sit on the sideline, say, I bought this business and it's just going to go start sending me checks every month. It takes a while to get to that point. That's probably the biggest, the biggest thing. Um, you know, I did, you know, I did miss, there's one or two things that I've missed in due diligence, whether because the due diligence wasn't good enough or they wouldn't be things that you would really uncover until you're actually in the business. So make sure you have contingencies in place for if surprises happen after acquisition. So I've learned some ways to structure to make sure I'm safeguarded against that, whether it's through seller notes or putting money in escrow or making sure your your lawyer is going to protect you when they're writing the purchase agreements like i said i'm just i'm i'd be good with a handshake my attorney wants a 90 page purchase agreement so somewhere in the middle is right <laughs> reasonable but he has saved my ass once or twice so so <laughs> i'm just saying no that's uh you know and unfortunately those contracts don't ever get read until something goes wrong. And then all of a sudden somebody opens the drawer and says, what does this actually say? What can we actually do here? And, you know, like you having a, a, a thoughtful attorney that's thinking of those, those ideas and plans. And it's because it's way more difficult to sometimes rectify those mid course than if you are thinking about them ahead of time. Well, and I'll also add what I have found is that this is a very immature and unsophisticated marketplace. So I'll contrast it with real estate just because it's it's easy. Like that's a mature marketplace. You know where to go to look for where deals are listed. You, even if you're looking for off market deals, there's a pretty like clear 
uh, approach to that. Some people are better at that, at that than others. But once you get into a deal, there's pretty much um, norms on how things are structured. And you just know what commission rates are, what different financing opportunities are. The business acquisition world, when you get below the like private equity level, it's like the wild, wild west, right? There's brokers that are all across the board on, on their competency levels. Uh, sellers are very, very uneducated about it in most cases. you got unsophisticated buyers. So this is something that I've seen. Uh, even with some of the educational material out there, it's just scratches the surface. Uh, it's better than nothing. But, you know, I've worked with um, Jay Morgana as an example. We're like, man, there's, there's a huge lack of really understanding on how this process works, which from a buyer's perspective is nice because it allows me to come in and provide that education and work with the seller because I'm not trying to take advantage of anybody. If, this, if I'm approaching a business owner that doesn't really know how it works, I can sort of guide that process and make sure they understand what's happening and you know maybe get it to a point that works the way I want it to work, but still becomes a win-win for both of us. So that's another interesting thing. It's there's a million ways to do these things, and there's um, but there's not a lot of like understanding on how how it can work. So yeah, that's that's one of the challenges that I've seen uh, very much in this industry is exactly what you said. You know, is like the licensing or is there licensing for business brokers? It's like, dude, just somebody shows up and just like I'm going to start selling businesses, and you know, like you said, most and I don't know where I read this at some point, like something like. 80% of small businesses are actually not profitable, you know? So it's like, it eliminates the vast majority, assuming that you want to buy a profitable business. You just usually that's where I'm at. Like, you know, you do, like you said, you don't want to go buy a job. Like I want to go work at Subway and own a Subway franchise and make 50 grand a year slinging some, some foot long, you know, uh, Subway sandwiches. But so it's like, you know, there's, weeds out a lot of potential businesses, the brokers, and then the finances. And then obviously as being a, a small business owner and evolving and doing this for 20 plus years is like our books sucked like, you know, for a lot of years, cause it was like, we were doing it ourselves and we were inputting in QuickBooks and we weren't putting it in correctly. And that was because we use QuickBooks. I was like, there's other people that I've looked at as like, like I got like a, you know, shoebox full of receipts and like, that was their financials. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what this is. And they're like, yeah, there's all my finances. And you're like, I don't think I can underwrite this because it's like, uh, which is crazy. So it was like, like you said, it's just like wild, wild west, no framework, like buying a house, pretty standardized, how to finance it, how to buy it, where you're going to get a mortgage, what the value is. There's an appraiser, but in businesses, it's just like, who knows that also creates tremendous amounts of opportunity for people that are willing to take action. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. That's the way I think about it. And I've bought businesses whose financials are on Excel operations are on paper. As long as I can understand everything and during underwriting can really be able to connect the dots. I just see all of that as opportunity. So I know that I, I mean, I could actually talk about this for years because this is just a, 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 you know, area that I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity is acquiring businesses because as the vast majority of these baby boomers are the owners of these businesses, they're retiring. They don't have an opportunity, a legacy plan, a, you know, 
you know, their kids saw their parents growing it up, growing the business up and do not want anything to do with the business. And so there's a whole lot of these, you know, the vast majority of the employers out there are going to be exiting or leaving that business environment, especially in maybe a recessionary environment. So I, I want to ask a couple of quick questions. They don't have to be quick answers, you know, but the the one thing that I consistently ask or try to ask of most people is what is one thing that you have purchased that has given you more time? So something you've traded your money for that's given you more time. Uh, it would probably have to be hires. Um, people, you know, that talked about hiring the COO for the, for the advisory business to do just that. I mean, you talked about it, the opportunity of what's coming in the next 10 years with small business transactions, small business business transaction is, is out of control. I've heard anything from 10 to $30 trillion worth of asset values that will need to change hands in the next 10 years. And 80% of those businesses will just kind of fail and fall or, or not, not transition. So it, it's, it's just demographics. It's the way our country was built. So I want to keep that going because I had acquired businesses and I was focusing on making sure they were all going well. I sort of let that advisory company put it on the back burner a little bit, but it was still part of the long-term strategy. So whether there becomes a fund or that becomes, you know, a true holding company remains to be seen, but I still wanted that pipeline and that advisory work to continue to help those business, those businesses that can transfer actually transfer. So hiring a COO to run that company just like gave it life. And, you know, the, when I was trying to find time between the other stuff to like fit in, to make sure that it was still going now it's happening. I've kind of spent maybe 20% of my time in that, you know, like working on that business and working with clients and adding value and let that individual kind of keep it going. So I could, there's other stories along the way there. Um, like the first business I bought was a metal fabricating company, manufacturing company. I bought it with uh, three other guys through one, one of my masterminds, Coabundance. And I run the operations, but I hired a general manager three months in. I spent those first three months there learning it, doing it, but then hired that guy three months in. And now I spend maybe an hour a week on that company and it's doing great, right? But it, and all of my time is focused on the people and the culture and and that the part that I like. So. It has to be people. I don't have any good gadgets. I don't know. I'm not a gadget collector. <laughs> so. I think that is is in, in incredibly important. Exactly what you said is that hiring is, you know, the who, not how. You know, it's just one of those things that it's just like you have limited amounts of time, an hour in a given week, month, year. And so if you're trading your time for money, obviously trade money for, for time and you're leveraging other people's experiences. So as we're kind of wrapping up for this business buying experience, if you can maybe give, you know, some recommendations of some books or podcasts or things that kind of helped you that, you know, somebody that looking to maybe, you know, dive into this, this space, you know, where could they, you know, find some, some information? Yeah. Some of the things that I went through, um, the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, it doesn't air anymore, but I think they're, some of their older episodes are still available. They're, they're pretty decent. The two books that I read that I um, were specific around business acquisition were Built to Sell. I don't remember who wrote it, but that was a good one about thinking about how to set up a business to get it ready for sale. 
So I use that as a tool when I'm going into my businesses, whether my goal is to sell it or not. I think positioning your business that could be sold just makes it a good business. Um, and I use it when I'm talking to my clients as well. That one was pretty good. And then buy, then build is another good book. I took that class. I think again, it kind of scratches the surface. Walker Dybul has a pretty good kind of community around business acquisition. I still think there's an opportunity in that space. So Jay, who I talked about earlier, he and I have kind of tossed around building out some material and a course around getting a little bit deeper and maybe broader on that topic. Uh, so those are probably the two books and then that one podcast. There's there's others. Think Like an Owner is a good one. Um, there's also like the Harvard Business Review Guide to Business Acquisition is pretty decent. It's just kind of nuts and bolts of things. But again, until you get into it and do it and go through the process, you're not going to really know all that goes into it. That's awesome. So how, where can people find you? Maybe they want to reach out to you to... You know, have you helped them do some stuff in the advisory world or help, you know, work them through acquiring their business? Where can they find you? And then what is one of those ask of the audience? Uh, and, you know, can they bring you a deal or is it a client or something that you're looking for and how can they help you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so the holding company advisory company is called Blue Line Ventures. Uh, it's blueline-ventures.com. Uh, we're starting to put a little bit more content out there mostly on LinkedIn. That's our main social platform. Uh, I'm Joseph Wexler. LinkedIn is probably the place I'm most active uh, or those that website. The, the business that I'm focused on the most right now is called virtualli.io. It's a telehealth business. It's a 50-50 joint partnership between me and the largest health system in South Carolina. The, the guy that I had coffee with on that first day, we now we spun off a program out of health, his health system and it's kind of going gangbusters, which is pretty fun. So I spend a lot of my time on that. Uh, Virtualli.io can also be seen on LinkedIn a lot. And what can people, I mean, I don't, I'd love to help people that are thinking about this the same way um, as, a, as a different alternative investment scenario. So if anybody has questions on, on like why and how business acquisition, I'd love to kind of give that stuff back. And if people do need help, that have a family member or a friend that has a business that stuck in, they want to get out in. I'm happy to talk through that too, whether they become a client or not. I just love those conversations. So that's awesome. Joe, I appreciate your time. Uh, I know that you got to get going to uh, another one of your meetings, probably running or buying, you know, 50 more companies uh, <laughs> by, by tomorrow. Uh, so I appreciate you. Thank you very much. I'm super grateful for your time. And again, I've actually re reached out to you and you've given me a lot of insights and information about acquiring businesses as well. So people hit him up. He is a wealth of knowledge. He's yeah. new to this, but I think his background and his experience sheds a tremendous light on this. And, and one of those things where uh, a wealth of knowledge, uh, Joe, thank you very, very much. I appreciate you. Thank you, Jake. Same at you. Been a pleasure. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.RealEstate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. 
It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.